The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Uh, It's always a joy to be with you all and to worship Jesus with you all. Um, If I haven't met you, my name is Gary, one of the pastors here at Park Church. Uh, We get to gather together as a family uh, every week and worship Jesus. We get to sing uh, because he's worthy, because of who he is and what he's done. We get to learn what it means to follow him together. We get to learn what that means as we all go out from this place uh, to serve him and, uh, and represent him as ambassadors of his kingdom everywhere he's called us to go. And so it's always a joy to be here, but if you're new to Park Church and are looking at finding more ways to get involved in our community beyond just our our Sundays, which we hope that you would, we have a short meeting after the service that's designed for you. Take about 10 minutes in the room back in the corner. It says new here. Uh, We take about 10 minutes to get to know you a little bit, what brought you here, uh, but also uh, answer any questions you might have, share with you a little bit about what God's called us to in this city and uh, how you can get more involved. And so if that would serve you in any way, uh, that's available right after the service. Uh, Again, it takes about 10 minutes. Uh, This morning, we are entering into our seventh and final installment in our series through the Gospel of Matthew. We have been in Matthew for 81 Sundays, which is wonderful, Uh, 81 wonderful, wonderful Sundays, uh, where we've been looking at who Jesus is, what his kingdom's like, what, it, what he came to do, what it means to follow him as a people. And it's been, it's been a sweet journey. We started in the spring of 2020. Uh, and that just means a lot of you weren't here at the beginning. You weren't here for the genealogies and all that, all that fun stuff. Um, you can go back and listen. It's all right. Uh, some of you have just come in the past few months and, uh, and you didn't know that we were even in the Gospel of Matthew. We took time over the, over the last five weeks to look at what it means to follow Jesus and the way he lived with relationship towards the world on mission and the world. And then we spent some time during Advent, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, looking at what it means to live in light of the return of Christ, that he's promised he's coming again. And so we're stepping back in now and we'll finish up at the end of this spring. We'll journey back into the Psalms. We've got two summers left before we finish all 150 Psalms. That's wild. Uh, so we'll get through uh, like the, the 140s uh, this summer or the 130s this summer. And then, uh, and then we'll step into an Old Testament book of the Bible this fall. Uh, what we do as a church family is we just make kind of a steady habit of looking through the whole scripture. We, we really believe that all scripture is is profitable and all of it's breathed out by God and all of it is designed by God to show us Jesus, but also to push on our lives and encourage us in the ways we need to be encouraged, to challenge us in ways and ultimately to bring us closer to Jesus and his kingdom. And so we get to do that again. Uh, We are again stepping into this season um, and these next few chapters are gonna face some things that are a little uncomfortable, a little uncomfortable. We're gonna be in Matthew chapter 23. I'm gonna read it in a minute, uh, but before we do, I wanna pray for us and pray that God would open our hearts to see Jesus through his word. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we uh, right now pause uh, to consider yet again uh, that you are with us. Just like we read about at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, you promised I'm gonna be with you all the time. And so I'm just leaning on that promise right now as we look at this historical record of things that you said I pray that it wouldn't be merely a historical record, but that your word would speak again today through the power of the Holy Spirit. That your spirit would pierce into our hearts to show us the reality of who you are, to show us even the reality of those uncomfortable truths that we've turned from you, all of us, in ways that, that those ways we've turned from you, these ways we've sinned against you, they warrant a, a real judgment a judgment that's hard for us in our culture to even think about, to talk about, to to consider. But ultimately, even that reality brings us deeper into the work that you've done on our behalf, like we just sang about. Oh, praise the one who paid my debts and raised this life up up from the dead. I pray, Jesus, that you'd help us to see, as we look at these passages, your glory, your holiness, the significance of your judgment, and ultimately the beauty of the cross and the resurrection. So Holy Spirit, help us this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. 
I'm going to give a little bit of uh, background, uh, and then we'll kind of hop into the passage. Uh, but first, I want to ask you to consider your, um, your kind of like streaming platform of choice, like Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, HBO+, Disney+, whatever, whatever, all of the above. On all of these platforms, you have this little kind of like thing if you were to hop onto the homepage, and it's like recommended for you. Like based on what you've watched, we know what you like, and we're going to now recommend those things. We've taken what you've, the history of what you've watched, plus all the recorded conversations from Siri and Alexa, <laughs> and compiled them together to know you inside and out, and to offer to you, you'll like this, and this, and this. And so when you hop on, and you finish that series that you've been working through for a while, and you think, oh, I finished that series. I'm so sad. You know, uh, there's going to be some options right there for you that are right in the zone of what you already like. If you're a documentary fan, documentaries are just going to be laid out before you, right? Food documentaries, animal documentaries, like historical things. It's all, I'm not into food documentaries. Like if it's going to make me feel guilty about eating what I'm going to definitely continue to eat, then I'm (laughs) not going to watch that. Uh, I'm not going to watch that. But, or maybe it's rom-coms or action movies. My wife always makes fun of me because like every movie that I like is pretty much the same storyline, some rogue CIA operative that like has been like, you know, there's been some cabal to frame him for something, and he's trying to make his way back to, like, prove his innocence and execute vengeance on those who betrayed him. Like, uh, so all the things, you know, all the sort of Jack Ryan stuff, that's, that's me, and so on, on, my, on my channel, it's all that kind of stuff. And you look at it, and you're like, this is what I like, and it's offering me these opportunities to stay in the zone of what we already know I like. And we do that with a lot of things in life. Your social media feeds do the same. Your kind of like news viewing habits do the same. We kind of surround ourselves with the things that kind of like keep us in the zone of our, our comfort and the things that we know kind of like appeal to our basic sensibilities and approach to life. And unfortunately, we can do the same thing with the Bible. We can, we can do the same thing with Christianity. We, we have, there are aspects of Christianity that are interesting to us, that are appealing to us, that are comfortable to us, and there are aspects of Christianity or aspects of the Bible that are a little more uncomfortable. And so we find preachers that talk about the things we we like preachers to talk about, and podcasts that talk about the things that we like podcasts to talk about, and we read the books of the Bible that are a little more comfortable for us, that we kind of know what's going on, and it feels a little more pleasant. We avoid other things, and we go to churches that kind of like are in the zone of what we think a church should be about. And the problem with that is that, that what it can lead us to is be really kind of like distorted in our view of God. We can actually kind of accept and welcome into our own concept of God certain aspects about his glory, his manifold glory, and all the diversity that exists in who he is. We welcome aspects of that. Other aspects we tend to avoid. We tend to avoid. We tend to push away from. We're hesitant. We don't know what to do with them. Or maybe they're deeply uncomfortable. Or we think, is that really in the Bible? Is the God of the Old Testament really the God who revealed himself in the person of Jesus? Are they the same? Is all the New Testament true? All the New Testament, is it just the Gospels? Maybe Paul's letters or Peter's letters or James' stuff feels a little weird. Luther didn't like James' stuff. Maybe I don't have to like it either. Maybe, maybe aspects of the Old Testament where it just feels like, I don't know, that just feels kind of like wrathy, you know? Uh, I don't even know what that word means, but that feels wrathy uh, to me or confusing. And and we tend to kind of create a a vision of God that has aspects of him, but pushes away other things. We get a distorted distorted view of God. And when we have a distorted view of God, it leads us into all sorts of unhealthy ways of approaching him, of understanding even the depths of who he is and what he's done for us, what it means to follow him. And so what we do as a church family is we try to work through books of the Bible so that we can see the, the parts of Jesus, we can see the parts of scripture uh, that are even uncomfortable. You know, in, in Matthew, you have all these passages like we just sang about, one of my favorite verses in all of Matthew, one of the themes in Matthew that'll actually come out of this passage today but that we sang about, you say, come, 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 lay down your burdens, give up your worries, child, come home. You say, come, come, come. My, my heart is gentle. My way is easy. I, I am your home. That comes from Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30, where Jesus invites all those who are weary and beat down to come to him. He talks about the gentleness of his heart, that he comes to alleviate burdens. We'll see that. But there are also aspects of Jesus where you see grief, and anger, and judgment, and passion, and direct, harsh, stinging rebuke and confrontation. 
And that's what we get to look at for the next three weeks. Sound fun? <laughs> Sounds great. Um, and we need it. We need it. My, my, my general inclination that's kind of like come over time as like a preacher who kind of picked these books of the Bible and we're like, this is going to be fun. And when I think it's going to be fun, I'm thinking of like certain passages. Those are going to be fun. And then they're like, you're kind of preaching through it and prepping it. You're like, that's going to be scary and hard to say that publicly in front of a people. Um, but we've got to figure it out. What I keep finding again and again and again, it is those painful, uncomfortable places that God tends to do the most work because that's where my view of him needs to be corrected. It needs to be challenged. It needs to be augmented. It needs to be expanded to see him as he truly is. And so we've been working through the Gospel of Matthew. And we've been seeing Jesus come onto the scene, kind of portrayed by Matthew as the king who's come to restore the kingdom of God. In chapter 4, he comes on the scene after his baptism, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, welcoming people into his kingdom, but not who you'd expect. It turns out to be a bit of an upside-down kingdom. It's the broken. It's the marginalized. It's the sinners. It's the tax collectors. It's the weary. It's the sick. It's the people that society had kicked off to the margins and kind of discounted as unworthy and outsiders. Those are the people that are making their way into this kingdom. And it's surprising people. And so Jesus in chapter five, six, and seven unpacks the way of his kingdom, the nature of his kingdom, the upside down aspects of it about who's truly blessed in his kingdom and what his kingdom vision for life is. And then he, then he kind of backs up and it's bewildering people. He's speaking with authority, but it's confusing and surprising. And so he starts showing his power Chapters 8, 9, 10, his power over the nature, his power over spiritual forces of darkness, his power over physical bodies, his power to forgive sins. And it's overwhelming, and people are beginning to follow him and get excited about him. And you get these 12 followers, and they're kind of all pumped. And what Israel tends to think, the community that's growing around Jesus, is like, the king we've been waiting for is finally here. The kingdom we've been longing for. As a nation that had all these promises from God that he would make us a light to the nations, he'd give us glory. Through us, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. For centuries, for generations, we've been under the thumb of world superpowers. We're now under the thumb of, thumb of Rome. And, uh, and our belief is the king's going to finally come and the king's going to drive out the Romans and reestablish our, our glory and our greatness. And as they listen to Jesus, he begins kind of like poking holes in those assumptions. And you see this divide beginning to happen. So throughout Matthew, we'll see it in this passage, there are kind of three parties that form in the way Matthew lays it out. There are the kind of disciples that are like, hey, we're in with Jesus. We love him. We think he's the king we've been waiting for. Lots of the stuff he says is confusing. I have lots of fears, lots of doubts, but I'm, I'm in. I'm like going to try to learn and try to figure it out. And it's uncomfortable. And times I'm terrified and want to turn away, but like I'm mostly in. That's the disciples. And then there's the crowds, which are this sort of neutral party that kind of like, it's the masses that were like, we're interested and intrigued, but we've also got these other ways of living over here that are also interesting and intriguing, and we're kind of torn. It's the crowds. And you have the religious leaders, the religious elite that are dead set against Jesus. He didn't come up through their ranks, and the way he's teaching, and the way he's healing, and who he's accepting, and the way he's talking about the kingdom of God is undermining the kind of systems and structures that they've built that keep them at the very top of their kind of like social, religious community and keep other people pushed down and Jesus is a threat and so they've been dead set against him. So throughout the story, this tension between those religious leaders and Jesus and his followers has been growing and it comes all the way to this point in Matthew 21 where Jesus comes into Jerusalem where he's predicted and he's told his disciples, I'm gonna come in here and they're gonna betray me, they're gonna arrest me, they're gonna condemn me to death. I'm going to be crucified and then I'll rise again on the third day. And his disciples are like, that's like more confusing stuff. That doesn't make sense. We're following you. Sounds good. Whatever that means. But anyway, when you finally drive out the Romans and take the throne, we're with you. As long as we're with you, we're good. And he goes into Jerusalem and, and he immediately begins confronting the sort of religious establishment that was headquartered in Jerusalem. And the tension grows and grows and grows. We are now, right now, in the last couple days of Jesus's life. We're probably in the sort of like Tuesday, Wednesday zone of what we call Holy Week. Holy Week, where Jesus is kind of living this final week of his life. And what he's choosing to do in this space is to confront the religious establishment. And so what we saw in the fall is, is Jesus kind of giving these parables that are painful indictments of the religious leaders who have rejected him and his kingdom. 
And so they start asking him questions because they're trying to undermine him in front of the crowds. They're trying to get the crowds to turn away from Jesus. And so they ask him a few clever questions and Jesus does what Jesus does, which is like Jesus jujitsu, where like they ask him a question, he like steps aside, does something, and they're like falling on their face in front of the crowds. And he makes them look like fools three times in a row, again, showing his wisdom, his authority. And at the end of that, the, the leaders are determined. Jesus has got to die. We can't turn the people against him. We can't undermine him. Everything we're trying to do, he, he makes us look like idiots. Our, our option now is to kill him. If we want to maintain our way of living and our way of life, we've got to kill Jesus. And Jesus feels that reality coming to its head. And instead of backing away from it, he embraces it head on. And so that's where we're at, Matthew chapter 23. If you have a Bible, open it up. We're going to read the whole thing. And then we won't unpack all the details. There's just too much to unpack. Uh, But we'll read the whole thing. This chapter will lay a foundation for chapters 24 and 25, which we'll spend a little more time talking about some of these themes in the next two weeks. We're in Matthew chapter 23. I want you to track with me. uh, There's going to be a transition in verse 13. A transition in verse 13 where he's going to shift from talking originally to the disciples and the crowds. In verse 13, he's going to turn to directly address and confront the religious leaders. So this is Matthew chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, there's one in front of you and you can feel free to take that home as a gift from Park Church. We want, want to be a, a church that's in the word of God, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week as we gather together. Matthew 23 says this. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, remember those parties, he's he's talking to his disciples, the committed followers, and to the crowds that are kind of like neutral and still semi-interested. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but do not do the works that they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, And you're all brothers and sisters. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold of the temple that has made, the the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon the throne. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you weren't willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. It's, it's an interesting phrase we say on Sundays when we read the Bible. This is the word of the Lord. We're saying like God breathed this and gave it to us to speak to us. As a culture, we can decide, you know, what we don't like, what's uncomfortable, what's unpleasant. But it's the word of the Lord. So what do we what do we do? with the parts about Jesus and the parts of the Bible that are uncomfortable. When, when you hear Jesus self-attest to the nature of his own heart, and he says, come to me, I'm gentle and lowly in heart, you're like, yes, gentle, loving, merciful, kind, patient, faithful, Jesus, I love that. When you hear Jesus call people a brood of vipers, you hypocrites, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Ugh. Let's go back to Matthew 11. I think we should stick around here for, for a little while, and we will for the next few weeks to explore these themes. What we're going to see in this passage is that Jesus, even in his sadness that we'll see in this passage, the grief he feels, and in the anger that he expresses vehemently, directly, forcefully, clearly, even in that sadness and in that anger, it is an expression of his love for the world. That God's judgment against human rebellion is not separate from his love. It's the context in which his love makes sense. It's the context in which we understand the depth of his love, the, the, the magnitude of his mercy, the, the cost of his own sacrifice for us. And so we need to linger here for a little while. What I want us to see this morning, we're going to see three different things in a few different sections and, uh, and just kind of lean in to say, okay, Jesus, we want to follow you. And we've experienced things about you. We want to see more about who you are in this passage, who you claim to be, and what it means to be your people. And so the first thing I want us to see in the passage is this, that Jesus calls us away from works-based systems that beat people down with unbearable burdens. Jesus calls us away from works-based systems that beat people down with unbearable burdens. You notice at the very beginning, the, the audience of his first, the first 12 verses. The audience is the disciples and the crowds. He's speaking directly to the disciples, those who are following him, 
and the crowds. He's not yet confronting the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. He's actually inviting his disciples and the crowds to watch out for a way of life that has been compelling people and crushing people for all of human history. For all of human history. Listen to what he says. It says, then Jesus said to, his, to the crowds and the disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they sit on Moses' seat. They, they are kind of taken upon themselves this mantle that's not inherently bad to unpack for the people of God what's spoken about in God's word. That's good. In as much as they do that, do what they say. They're unpacking for you God's word. And Jesus is going to make a differentiation in this space between the truth of his word and the lives of some people who claim to profess it and to call others to it. And that's significant for us with all the church scandals and all the chaos and all the brokenness that's happening in the world to say that there is a way of approaching religion where you can talk about things that are true and right and good and live in ways that are damaging and destructive and evil. And Jesus is saying, hey, in as much as what they're saying is faithful to the, to the law of Moses, do that. That's good. But the way they live, do not follow them. Why? He says it. He says, they tie up heavy burdens that are hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to move them with their finger. They, they have taken religion, and, and they've taken their approach to the kingdom of God, and they've made it a kind of a system where they're calling everybody to do more, be better, do better. And the whole kind of like cultural mentality in that space was, well, if we want God to come back and drive out the Romans, if we want kind of this comfortable life that we long for, we're going to need God to come and do something. And to get God to do those things, the way to do that is to be good enough for him to like be like, finally, I've been waiting for you guys to be good enough. Now that you're finally good enough, I'm going to come and I'm going to deliver you from Roman oppression. I'm going to make your life comfortable. And so the idea is like, if we can do enough kind of like religious activity and if we avoid the wrong things and do more of the good things, God will be really happy with us and give us the life that we long for. And we do the same, same kind of basic thing. And we do it with religious contexts. Like, if I can just, like, go to church enough, and if I can just kind of, like, read the Bible enough, and I can, if I can just be better than other people enough and avoid these kind of really bad things and do some of these good things, probably not those really, you know, extreme things, but just somewhere in this space, if I can, like, live in this space, God will be like, wow, and then he'll give me the life that I long for. And we, and we do that, and then it just always feels like, well, a little, a little bit better or a little bit more or, or a little bit different. For them, they had taken all these kind of old covenant commandments, and they had just multiplied all these extra rules on top of them that made people constantly feel either they were killing it, it's a sense of pride and superiority, or for the most part, people felt deep sense of shame and embarrassment, like they're broken. And the way Jesus talks about it in Matthew 11 is it was leading them to be weary and beat down. That approach to God of like, do better, do more, be better, beats people down. And I, and I wish we could just say like, all those other churches out there that do that. But it's really easy to sit in a space like this on a Sunday and feel like, man, I feel like everybody else is a little bit ahead of me. If I just did a little bit more, if, I, if they knew what was really going on in my heart, if they knew my brokenness or the fears, or I, you know, maybe I can clean up and, and try harder. And, and this sense of like, you should be doing more and you should be doing better and and until you do, God's never going to kind of give you the life you long for. That way of thinking about relating to God is crushing. It's crushing. Many people have tasted it and felt it. I've tasted it. I've lived it. I've pushed people and challenged people in ways that I don't think honored the gentle and gracious invitation of Jesus. And it's damaging. And, and Jesus says, do not go that way. Do not go that way. In the upside-down kingdom of Jesus, burdens get lighter, not heavier. They get lighter, not heavier. You find freedom, relief, rest, restoration, the way of living. It's not that he doesn't call us to things, but the things he calls us to are in a context of gracious invitation and motivated by his love, empowered by his spirit with a kind of, a kind of experience of a security in the love of God that I'm just learning to be who I was designed to be. That fits right. And the way Jesus talks about it in, in Matthew 11, it's like, Man, his yoke, his way of life is easy, and the burden he gives is, is light. There's a different way. There's a different way. Th this doesn't just happen in religious circles, though. This happens in sort of like a secular way of life, in the court of sort of irreligious 
paths to life, which many of us also live in that space a lot. Like if I just get the right career, then it'll be, life will be what I long for. Everything will work out all right. If I just get the right relationship, that boyfriend, that girlfriend, that marriage, those kids, that next stage of life, then life will be good. It'll be what I long for. If I just get my net worth to this kind of like place where I can feel security, I can do some fun things and have some kind of long, long-term security, as long as I can get there, it, it'll be good. If I can just kind of like be liked in these certain ways and then my peers, my classmates like respect me, if I can just kind of graduate with that GPA and land that, that kind of job right out of college, then, then life will be good. And then you get there and it's like, well, if I can just do the, the next and the next, a little more, a little farther, a little better. And that is like this tyranny of more, better, faster, farther. And it's crushing people all around our world. In, in this society, it was mostly in a religious system. In a society like Denver, there are people being crushed by the sense you should be doing better. Keep up with your neighbors, keep up with your colleagues, keep up with your classmates, keep up with the people in your GC, keep up with the people at Park Church that sat next to you or in front of you that you imagine them just being a little bit better and if I can just get there and the anxiety that that begins to create, the systems of pride and shame, how we go from like working really hard to perform to then we start just pretending like we've got it together but we don't. And Jesus gives us this really beautiful invitation just to be honest. Just to be really honest about the brokenness we feel within us, the weariness we feel, the anxiety that we carry everywhere we go, we try to avoid and distract ourselves from, the depression that weighs on us. He's saying, that's not the way of my kingdom. In my kingdom, burdens get lighter, burdens get lifted. We don't crush people. This is a quote from David Foster Wallace in his famous commencement speech at Kenyon College not a Christian, speaking about the nature of worship. He said this, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. Again, the Bible has a different approach to those things. Um, it's that they're unconscious. They're default settings. They're the kind of worship that you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how, much, how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. So it's a profound insight from a non-Christian saying everybody's living for something and you're spinning and you're chasing and the things you live for and your pursuit of like building this great life for yourself ultimately crush and disappoint and Jesus has invited us to a better way. Also here in this first passage, this kind of like powerful reality, he shows that in the upside down kingdom of Jesus, the way to true greatness is not upward mobility. In the kingdom of Jesus, the way up is down. He says these religious leaders, they tie these prayer boxes called phylacteries on their arms and they get these long tassels and they try to prove in their outward life like how great they are, how religious they are, how accomplished they are, how revered they ought to be. They take these honorific titles of rabbi and instructor and, and they kind of like father and if you call me all these things because I'm above you and, and you're below me and they create these systems where they can look elevated and other people can be like, wow, you're so great. And they're like, yes, I'm so great. You know, it's a blessing for, for you to be around me. Like, like just because I get to give this to you. And they live in a world where the way up was up and they've climbed that ladder and they're at the top. And Jesus says, in my kingdom, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. In my kingdom, the way up is down. It is humility. It is sacrificial love and service. It is emptying yourself. It's going to your home and thinking, how do I show up here to serve? It's going to your work and saying, my goal here is not to climb the ladder and be better than everybody and more respected than everybody. It's to lay down my life, to serve my colleagues and through my work to serve the world. 
in my classrooms. It's not just a goal to kind of show up and be the cool person that everybody's like, wow, they're so cool. I wish I could hang out with them. Or, or they're so smart. I like, wish I knew a, like what they know. But to show up to love and to serve and to care for the interests and the needs of others, to show up in all the spaces where God calls you, esteeming others as more significant than yourself and living your life to benefit others, that's the way of Jesus. That's the way of his kingdom. And he says, in the world, whether religious circles or irreligious circles, they're going to build it a different way. And I'm cautioning you. I'm warning you, crowds and disciples, don't go that way. My kingdom is headed in a different direction. It's headed in a different direction. So he invites them to it. And then he turns to give attention specifically to the religious leaders. And this is where we see the second point. That Jesus grieves when people are led astray and pronounces judgment as an act of deliverance. Jesus grieves when people are led astray, and he pronounces judgment as an act of deliverance. There are uh, seven woes here, uh, seven woes in this. I know that's a word that we don't use often. Well, we use it sometimes. You might have read this whole passage and been like, whoa, you know, uh, <laughs> whoa. Um, the way, the way Jesus is using woe is, is different. It kind of is carrying on this sort of prophetic tradition. And the word kind of combines these, these emotions and the, these pronouncements, this grief, this grief over the brokenness that human sin has led to in this society, and a pronouncement of judgment against those who perpetuate it. It's, it's a grief and a pronouncement of judgment. And attached to the whole thing is this invitation to repentance. His invitation to repentance. So he gives seven different woe statements, speaking directly to the, the Pharisees and the scribes. They're, again, they're not like seen in the first century as the bad guys. It's saying like, hey, the pastors and the priests, priests and the deacons, you know, like it's just the religious leaders. It's, it's, it's speaking to people that are in a position like I'm in here saying we're unpacking these things and the, and the things that Jesus says are so, so pointed. So, so kind of like unmitigated. He's being as direct as he can possibly be to leave no doubts about what he really thinks about the religious system that's been built in Jerusalem and in Israel. And so all these kind of, the first three sets kind of come in pairs, one and two, three and four, five and six go together. So I'm just going to, instead of kind of walking through all the details, give you the sort of the main thing he's driving at in each of these sections. Verse 13, it talks about woe to the scribes and the Pharisees, these hypocrites. And the idea of the hypocrite is you, you wear this mask. Like on the outside you are something, and on the inside you are something very, very different. It's just like disintegration, that who you are on the outside and who you are on the inside is deeply separate. And he says, you shut the kingdom of the heaven in people's faces. And the people that want to come in, you don't let them come in. They don't let them come in. You close the door of the kingdom on people and you lead them down the wrong path. He's essentially saying, I came into this world to rescue people from this attempt to build the Garden of Eden like we talk about without God, to build the kingdom without the king, to, to build acceptance and love and, and significance and worth and identity apart from God. It's crushing people. It's leading people towards destruction as they're separated from the God of love because of their sin and rebellion. It's, it's leading people to this unmitigated misery. And I came into the world as an expression of love to welcome people graciously back into my kingdom. We're going to see what he did to make that a, a possibility and available to all who would turn to him. But he said, I came to do this. And as people begin to turn and explore my kingdom, you're standing in the way. Your way of life, your way of leadership, your system of works and workspace righteousness and your hypocrisy is barring people from entering my kingdom. And I hate that. And it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. And that's in the religious system there. We can do the same thing in our culture. We can apply it to religious systems. We can also apply it to the systems of this world where we try to like live a life where we, if we can just build this sort of American dream kind of life and get the good life on, on the terms and have a little bit of Jesus on the side. I'll take some religious stuff to kind of like kind of help me with that little part of my life. But mostly I'm like chasing the good life according to kind of the, the American value system, the American value system. And we're like, this is the good life. And we're like, come this way. Do it like me. Let's all chase what? 
what the Bible would call like idolatry. Let's all dig out these like broken cisterns that actually can't ultimately satisfy, but come with me over here. I've been digging for a long time. My broken cistern that doesn't satisfy is getting pretty deep. Join me, you know, and like, well, I'm, I'm feeling like anxious and worn out and weary. And like, I want to hear Jesus saying my way is gentle and easy and I'll give rest to your soul. But all my friends are still chasing that life and it's hard. It's hard. We perpetuate these systems that lead people down the wrong path. And Jesus has come to put an end to that. He's, he is weary and grieving a world where people are per- perpetually led away from his kingdom, even when he's offered gracious welcome into it. The, the third and the fourth woes uh, that he pronounces are, are dealing with the first one of these kind of oaths that the religious leaders would kind of mount up. We talked about this back in Matthew 5. I think it was probably like spring of 2020, remember? Um, obviously, everybody remembers that. And uh, these oaths where they would kind of mount up all these words in their prayers and in their promises. And instead of just being true to who they are and living with integrity, they used kind of words and these systems to prove how much they knew and how much they could think about and, and these details. And they had all these systems like, well, you could swear by the temple, but you can swear by these different things in the temple. And you could prove your kind of status and your worth through all of it. And it led people to these like ridiculous, ridiculous kinds of promises that they were making. The second woe in this section, the the fourth one where he talks about, it's kind of like you tithe on your mint and your dill and your cumin. Like tithing is a good thing. He's for it. He says, you should have done that. But you got so obsessed with the sort of like the kind of minutia and these kind of like legalistic applications of it that you abandoned the most fundamental realities of love, justice, faithfulness. And what he's saying in these things is you've, you've distracted yourselves with like religious tedium and you've lost the heart of who I am and what it means to be a part of my kingdom. This is all over the place. We obsess about little things. We obsess about the debates. We obsess about politics. We obsess about culture. We, we obsess about theological secondary issues. It's not that they're unimportant, but you can obsess so much that you miss the heart of the whole thing. You miss what it means to to know God and to love him with your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. And because of his love for you, to love other people as yourself, you miss that. And when religious communities or secular communities get so caught up in like trying to like map out all these right ways to live that they've lost the heart of love for God and love for others, you miss the point altogether. It grieves the heart of Jesus. And on account of that reality, he's saying, judgment is coming. I have been calling people to come home again and again and again. And your persistent rejection, my last kind of like option here is to drive out all those who would continue to participate in those and perpetuate those systems. The fifth and the sixth woes, he talks about this this kind of idea of an, an ability to clean out the outside of something and have what's inside be defiled and broken, self indulgent and dead. He talks about cleaning out the outside of plates and cups, but what's inside is filthy. He talks about these kind of bone containers, these whitewashed tombs. They take these containers and they put the bones in these containers and put them inside the tombs. And the, and the containers are made out of like these marble and lime substances that, that could be really beautiful. It's like, great, beautiful box. Inside that box, deadness, deadness. You've spent all your time washing up the outside and what's on the inside is dead. What he's saying is, your obsession with external like moral improvements and external righteousness has masked your fundamental need for a new heart. Your fundamental need for a new heart. This is profound uh, as I think about my own life and a life in a community like ours. That we, we can kind of like think, who do I want people to see? What version of me do I, do I want you all to see? What version of you do you want me and other people here to see? And we kind of like take these external things and who we present. We talked about this at the men's retreat. The work of saying, what's behind that mask? Man, in my, behind my mask, mixed motives, insecurities, fears, shame, complacency. I can get up and talk about these things. But when I stop and look at my own life and my own heart, what my love for Jesus, the kind of like temperature of my heart towards Jesus or my heart towards other people, it's, it's, it's embarrassing, it's humbling, it's real. It's a part of the real me that needs a new heart, that needs forgiveness and mercy. Talk about it, this idea of like transformation happens when grace meets shame, but we're so committed to these sort of like external kind of like 
presentations of ourselves that we, we don't feel comfortable even being honest about the darkness within us. And so we make people think that Christianity is all about cleaning up and doing better than all those other people out there. And then people come in on a Sunday and they're like, all those Park Church people, they're incredible people. I don't know if I could ever be like them. Hey, we're not. We are all broken. And we're learning how to be honest about it. But it's scary. It's scary. But the invitation of Jesus is pay attention to what's inside of that whitewashed tomb. Pay attention to the dead stuff, the scary stuff, the sin, the insecurities, the fears. Pay attention and bring it to your own attention and bring it to God and say, here I am. It's like the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18 where there's a a Pharisee, a religious leader that's like, God, I thank you that I'm not all like these other people. I I tithe, you know, with all of my goods. I I pray all these times. I show up and I do all the right things. I'm not like this tax collector over here, this gross sinner. Like, I thank you that I'm not like them. And then this person who's rebelled against God, compromised with pagan religions, rebelled against his own people. He won't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He just beats his chest and says, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus is like, I love that. I love that. And he actually declares that person not guilty, forgiven, washed, clean, accepted. It's the person that says, here I am, broken and needy, that Jesus says, my love enters into that space. When you are honest about your brokenness and your need, my love enters in, offering forgiveness, redemption, and restoration, healing. It's profound. It's profound. In the last woe, <clears throat> these leaders are kind of puffing themselves up like, if we were, if we were back back where our fathers were there killing the prophets. We wouldn't have done that. We're better than them. We, we've done the right things. And Jesus is like, no, you're not. You're not better than them. And we are bad at this as a society. We look at our, our parents or our parents' generation or the generations gone by and we're like, how evil and how horrendous. And it's not that it wasn't. We're just better at doing that than saying, how evil, how horrendous in my own heart, my own sin. There was evil in generations gone by. We don't need to minimize it. But there's also evil in all of us. It's a lot easier to look at those past people or other people out there and say, how evil? And we kind of lift ourselves up and mask our fundamental need for forgiveness, that we all stand under judgment. This is a quote from N.T. Wright, and I think it's profound. It says, it'd be a bad mistake then to read a chapter like this as simply a moral denunciation. It would be still worse to read it as a moral denunciation of somebody else. That's halfway to committing the very mistake that's being attacked. It's halfway there. If we were, oh man, I'm going to send this sermon to my parents. You know, I'm going to send, I'm going to send, I'm going to post this on on my social media so that all those legalists out there can listen to this and all those other people out there and and like, hey, honey, I hope you're listening. You know, you hypocrite. Um, And like, yikes. It's real though. We like tend to see it as an invitation to judge those out there, and it's not. Matthew frames it as an invitation for us to look, where is this in me? Because it's in all of us. It's in all of us. And Jesus is bringing judgment because he does not want the world to be full of that. What's stunning to me about Jesus is he doesn't just come to kind of like drive out all of those kind of people that uphold these basic cultures and systems. We'd all be driven out if that was the case. But he comes with this invitation. And it's the last thing we see that Jesus longs for people to turn to him for redemption, refuge, and restoration. In this final section in, in the chapter, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you weren't willing? He's saying, I came into the world. I sent you prophet after prophet after prophet begging you to turn away and to come home to me, to re- repent, to turn away from your attempt to build the kingdom without me and to come to me with humility and need for forgiveness. And I would have gathered you up. I came into this world as the very son of God, inviting you, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke. Learn from me. I'm gentle, lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. Come. I'm here. And you're still rejecting me. You're still refusing. You're still pushing away. He says, the house that you've built has left you desolate. Look, you built a temple system. You built a religion. And God is not there. That, that's a stinging thing. Build, build your family. 
Build your career. Build your net worth. Build your reputation. Build your relational networks and your connections and your friendships. Is God there? It's not that family's bad. It's not that career's bad. It's not that friendship is bad. Is God there? He said, you've built this whole way of life and God's not even in it. It's left you desolate. But his invitation here at the end is stunning. He says, truly I say to you, or so he says this, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. To close out this whole section, he offers again an invitation that to accept and experience the, the restorative power of his kingdom. You don't have to build yourself up. You don't have to like atone for all your mistakes. You have to come to him in faith just to return to him as the one who can relieve you of your burden, forgive your sin, give you redemption, give you refuge, give you restoration, give you life. I'm gonna read this quote from Eugene Peterson from the message, his paraphrase of Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. He says this, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace and I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. See, Jesus announces with clarity the coming judgment on all those who persist in rebellion. But he does it just a couple days before he lays down his own life offering his life as a substitution, as a substitution before God to bear the wrath of God on behalf of his people, to pay for our debt, to take that judgment upon himself, to experience separation from God, to experience the penalty of our sin, to experience that isolation, that abandonment, that exposure, that vulnerability, to experience all of it as an expression of love and as an invitation that all who would come to him can come, not fearing judgment, not fearing the wrath of God, but receiving mercy and grace and life and love on the basis of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And that's the invitation he gives to us even here today. Let's pray and ask him to help us to turn to him in faith. Jesus, we come now and we pray for forgiveness and mercy and grace. We need your help. We need you to help us as we turn from the ways of life that are beating us down and to come to you in faith to receive your love and your mercy and your nearness. So thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. Thank you for the life that you offer freely, the grace that you give. Would you help us as a people to see the areas where we are per perpetuating and living into systems that crush us and others and help us to turn to find life and rest and salvation in you. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.